Hello, everybody. Welcome to Unexpected Points, the analytical man's or woman's uh, podcast. I am Kevin Cole. I'm your host. We're going to go through all 12 Sunday games, not a full, full slate of Sunday games because of the fact that we had a couple of extra there on Thanksgiving, but no teams on by this week. So we don't have a short and shortened week that we can fly through, but I do think we're going to get through some of these games pretty quickly this week because of the fact that either there weren't, you know, real playoff implications, the quality of play was really that bad, uh, that sort of stuff. There's not a whole lot of insight to be given for some of these games. And in fact, what was interesting about how the schedule laid out here and the Sunday ended up being a lot better than what you would have thought based upon how the schedule laid out. There was only one game this week that was between a, two teams with winning records. Only one game, not this week, sorry, on Sunday. Only one game on Sunday between two teams that had winning records going into this. But when you have divisions like the NFC South, for instance, you know you don't, you don't need a winning record. <laughs> to have some playoff implications, uh, some big playoff implications. And we'll talk about a couple of those teams soon enough when we get into the games. And we're going to start with the game that had the two winning teams. And that was when the Bengals went down to Nashville to take on the Tennessee Titans and came out victorious. So the Bengals are in business. Burrow uncorks it. End zone. Touchdown. T. Cincinnati takes the lead. Yes, we had one on one. Higgins Higgins wins the battle against the the rookie McCreary. They end up taking the lead and hold on at the end of the game with some pretty interesting, I guess you could say, uh, frustrating if you're a Titans fan plays here to wrap up the game. Before we get into the particulars there, let's start, as I always do, with the number of the game. The one number which I believe gives a little bit more insight versus what you may be hearing out there as to what happened in the game. And for this one, I think the number of the game is 6.7. Now, I track his pressure rate, but a lot of times pressures are created by the quarterback. Uh, If they hold the ball too long, it's something they really control. So what I like to look at is what I call quick pressure. So pressures that happen in less than 2.5 seconds because that is the – kind of average median time to pressure in the NFL. So only on 6.7% of dropbacks was Joe Burrow under pressure quickly in this game. One sack, three hits, 42 dropbacks. That is what I believe really allowed the Cincinnati offense and Joe Burrow to control this game and win this game. And when it comes to how, who they threw it to there, well, T. Higgins was the man. So T. Higgins, seven catches, 114 yards, and a touchdown. That touchdown there came later on in the game to basically seal it there, give them the 2013 lead. And there's a few different things that have to end this game that I really want to get into. Um, but before I get into some of the end-of-the-game stuff and decision-making stuff, few other high-level numbers, maybe like the second number of the game that I would point to is 12.6, and that's the pass rate over expectation for the Bengals. So they continue to lead into that. You know, whatever you want to say about Zach Taylor, he's figuring things out. He always figures things out about halfway through the season that, hey, maybe we should pass the ball. Uh, even if Jamar Chase isn't there, and I think there was a lot of 
consternation and worry about Jamar Chase not being there for Bengals fans after a blowout loss where they look completely inept on offense against the Browns that first week without Jamar Chase. Uh, things have turned around the last few weeks, uh, the last couple of weeks after that. And now we have Jamar Chase who will probably be back next week. Uh, let's hit the high level stuff for the game first before I get into all the details. Uh, Cincinnati at Tennessee, both teams now seven and four coming out of this game. The Bengals were one point favorites, which doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, when you're between the threes there, 42 and a half total ends up being a 36 point score, 20 to 16 Cincinnati wins and the adjusted score, 25, 19 Cincinnati. Cincinnati is really high up on my adjusted scores. Uh, the averages so far for this season, And now they're seven and four. They were one of those teams that had a losing record for a while, which my adjusted scores had them is probably more like a winning record sort of team. And they've come roaring back here. Uh, They haven't faced the stiffest competition on defense. So the offenses that they faced haven't been the stiffest competition, but you know, Tennessee's not that bad. Ten Hill's been playing well. Uh, Cincinnati still has a very, very hard schedule left to go. So we're not crowning them at this point, but a big victory for them in this game. Um, Derek Henry, 38 yards on 17 carries. That's probably the thing to point out again with multiple weeks now of the Tennessee Titans offense struggling, uh, the, the passing game, the drop back passing game added about 0.2 EPA per play, but then the rush, the rushes was negative 0.2. So this is a game where the Titans just could not get anything going on the ground. Similar sort of dynamic, honestly, with, the Bengals, where the Bengals were adding about 0.17 EPA per play, dropping back to pass, and were losing about 0.13 uh, expected points when rushing the ball. But they had a more concentrated, uh, heavier passing game in this one, which ended up making the difference here. Uh, big plays in this game, too. Yeah, the success rate was pretty low. Only 40% success rate for the Tennessee Titans offense. They did have a 69-yard catch and then the fumble into the end zone, which is recovered by Traylon Burks for a touchdown. That was a big play. They had a 51-yard catch for Traylon Burks on a contested target down the field. And then they also had a 25-yard catch on third and 10 for Nick Westbrook-Akine. Those were huge EPA plays for the Titans, the three biggest plays of the game. And that's really what kept their offense afloat because outside of that, they had a lot of issues. Um, Burrow was decent. You know, the running game was okay for, uh, the Bengals. Nothing hugely exciting there. It's just, he really had a lot of time. Again, the one sack for four yards is really huge for Joe Burrow in this type of game where that has been an Achilles heel for them in the past. Okay. So let's talk about a couple of decisions and things that happened at the end of this game. One, I'm going to talk about a fourth down and one, I'm sorry, fourth and five decision where the Tennessee had the ball. There was the fourth quarter, six minutes and 11 seconds to go. Six minutes, 11 seconds to go. We don't really care about what the timeouts were left. Um, down seven. So it was 20 to 13 at this point, fourth and five, 20 yards to go. Now you're a little bit in this zone for the Titans where, the field goal percentage, the chance that you're going to make a field goal, and again, this will be a 37-yard field goal, so an eminently makeable field goal right here, is so high that and you're still 20 yards away from the end zone, so you're not right next to the end zone, where you can get it a little bit. You can get it a little bit that on this particular decision, 
you don't have a huge win probability gain just in the decision itself. It's only about a 1.1% win probability gain to decide to go for it versus the field goal attempt because your success rate of making the field goal is, you know, 90% versus success rate of converting the fourth down when you have five yards to go is maybe 40%. So because of that huge differential, when you calculate out your expected win probability under all scenarios, if you go for it and versus all scenarios, if you kick the field goal, it's not a huge difference there. But in these types of situations, what I really like to look at here is you think about your success rate probabilities on this. You definitely think about your success rate probabilities, but you also look at and you say, what is our win probability if we are successful on this fourth down and five play? Because there's only six minutes and 11 seconds left in this game. We want to win the game. You play to win the game. So even if there's only a marginal difference when you add up the fact that you're 60% likely, you know, 60% chance that you don't convert on this play, and that puts you in a really bad spot if you don't convert here, and the win probability would only be 9% if you fail on this one. But if you do succeed, the estimated win probability, if they would have gone for it in this situation, uh, the estimated win probability would have been 30%. Versus the field goal, you make the field goal, you're 18%. I don't know. I just really think that going from 18% up to 30%, a 12% gain, you're, you know, you're not doubling your win probability, but you're almost doubling your win probability. I guess I would just feel much, much, much more comfortable giving yourself a chance, even if it's a lower chance, giving yourself a chance to be at that 30% win probability, a significant chance of really having a chance to win versus the field goal attempt only at 18%. Because, you know, at that point, you kick it, you're still down. Um, you're still down four points, and that's the way it ends. Now, they, 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 they could have gotten the ball back in this one, and that's another play that I'll talk about that were due to an unfortunate penalty here. Um, but I don't know. That, that, that's one, I think, that Vrabel, and if Vrabel does a lot of things really, really well, probably a little too conservative when it comes to some of the fourth down stuff in these games. The other play here, which was something that I, I've seen this definitely before, where the snapper on a field goal must be left untouched. You can't, you know, blast into the snapper on a field goal until he has raised his head. And that was a play where um, it was, it basically ended the game. There's one minute in. Four and 53 seconds left to go. McPherson was going to attempt a fourth and 11 field goal from the Tennessee 13 yard line. And that's when the penalty happens. Um, you know, they would have gotten the ball back down by seven points with basically a little bit under two minutes to go. Now, down by seven points is something, you know, it's not, it's not the greatest position though. Cause even if you score the touchdown, you can either go to overtime or you can do the two point conversion, which then cuts your win probability in half then. So you not only do you need the touchdown, you need the two pointer or the win in overtime. So it's not like they had a good chance of winning this game, even at that point in time, according to the win probability sort of numbers. So they're talking about before the, the penalty happens on this one, we assume the penalty would not have happened on this one. You know, what sort of win probability did they have here? It was still maybe 
a 7 8% win probability. It's still very, very low that you get the ball back, score the touchdown, get the two-point conversion, all those things underneath that sort of, of play in time. Although win probabilities are a little squirrely at the end of the game. But still, we're talking about maybe a 10%-ish sort of chance, if that. But, you know, bad, bad penalty, end of the game, end of the chances for the Titans here. Playoffs, we got to talk playoffs. What are we looking at here? How did this affect team probabilities? Well, the Bengals are now the second biggest gainer in playoff probability on the week. They're up to 76% playoff probability, 35% chance now to win the division. That is up 16% uh, because of a spoiler alert, a Ravens loss in this one. And when it comes to Tennessee, you know, you still got a 93% chance to make the playoffs, 92% chance to win the division. Really much less important game for the Titans than it was an important game for the Bengals. And according to my numbers, again, we look at the justice scores for the seasons, for the whole season. I don't know. Cincinnati's right up there, right up there with everyone else um, for how they've played. Now, I don't see them, obviously, as being as good of a team as the Buffalo Bills and the Kansas City Chiefs. There's a second tier now of the NFC, top NFC teams, where we talk about Philly, we talk about the 49ers, and we talk about the Dallas Cowboys. But in that next tier, which is maybe a slight step down from that top NFC tier, I don't know. Cincinnati's right there with anyone else. I think they may be at the top of that next tier there. Uh, you might have Baltimore still being a little bit better, but I don't know. I, I think they're right at the top tier there. And if anything, Cincinnati might even be a better team than they had last year, that team that went to the Super Bowl. Doesn't mean they have a, you know, they're going to make it the Super Bowl and they're going to do as well as they did last year. But I think internally, the way the offensive line is playing again, no pressure in this game. The way the defense has been playing consistently the whole season, you have Jamar Chase coming back. This might actually be a better team here for the Bengals going forward. All right. Next game I'm going to hit up here is the Baltimore Ravens that I talked about. The first of two two point conversions that we saw at the end of the game, whether or not it's an analytics decision, I'll get into. But it was the right decision by the results. And that is Jacksonville Jaguars converting that and winning the game against the Baltimore Ravens. Lawrence in the shotgun, looking left, throws left, and it's caught! Zay Jones! Yes, yes, Zay Jones. Uh, props to Josh Norris of Underdog Fantasy. He's been hyping up Zay Jones for a while now. I, I didn't wasn't sure if Zay Jones would ever actually get a meaningful week as far as uh, fantasy was concerned. But you know, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to give him the props here for Zay Jones because in this particular game here, we got Zay Jones eleven catches, a hundred. 45 yards in this one on 14 targets the dominant the dominant option here uh in this one and i want to give all the props to the jags we're going to talk about the late decisions for the jags our jags they they've officially been deemed one of our teams when we talk about analytical people and the teams that we follow and we love they're there uh peterson made the right decisions here despite not converting a fourth and one earlier in the game but there are Ravens also, and a lot of things that they do. They didn't convert a fourth down also. Um, but I think the turning point in this one, because I don't want it to get lost in the fact that uh, Lamar Jackson was really, really good in this game, despite the fact that they didn't end up pulling it out. And the number of the game is a little bit of context here for Lamar Jackson. So 15.6 is the number of the game, and that's the dropped pass rate for the Ravens. 
Uh, they had five dropped passes in this game. Three of them were in the end zone. And so one of those three, the Ravens go on and they, and they score a touchdown anyway. So maybe you can wipe that one off. It's not really a huge effect on the game, although it affects uh, Lamar Jackson's like efficiency type of numbers that don't take account of the drops. But two of them were drives that the Ravens end up kicking field goals on. And you look at the plays, and again, drops always have this thing where rarely is a drop 100% on the receiver. Normally, it's a little bit of a, yeah, it's a bit like you should catch that 70, 80% of the time. And that's kind of how these ones were. I don't think these were ones that were 100% on the receiver. The one for Mark Andrews that he dropped in the end zone was maybe close to being 100% on him. It's probably 85, 90% on him, but they end up scoring a touchdown on this one. They had a couple other drops, though, in the game, one by a tight end, one by uh, Demarcus Robinson in the end zone, where they did not score. So that really ended up being a defining difference in this game, some of those dropped passes. Uh, the particulars on this one, Baltimore, 7-4 and four also, along with the Bengals. So that's why now they are uh, lockstep there in the AFC North. The Jags, 4-7 and seven on the year after this. Uh, a stat that I pointed out that, of course, you know, Vikings – Twitter took a little bit of offense to. I wasn't trying to even make it like a Vikings comment. I was trying to make it more a Jaguars comment is that after this game, the Jags on the season have a 12 positive 12 point differential. So they've scored 12 more points in their opponents throughout this entire season. Yet they are four and seven. The, you know, one of the few losing teams to have a positive point differential, and especially being, you know, three games under 500, having a positive point differential. And the Minnesota Vikings are plus five on the season. So they're better than the Minnesota Vikings, who are eight and two this season, um, or nine and two this season, and they're also better than the uh, Tennessee Titans, who are only plus four on this season. Now, part of that is because they got completely blown out by the Buffalo Bills, but still plus four on the season, and they're seven and fourteen. This Jags team, I had mentioned before that I thought they were sneaky to potentially, you know, not win out, but have a very strong last section of this season coming off of the bye. Uh, it starts this week and it's also something where, you know, if you can get your 2023 uh, bets ready here, I think the Jaguars may be close to being, I don't know if they're the favorites, but they they should be right there with maybe Tennessee, assuming Tannehill is coming back for their chances of winning this division next year. Uh, all that being said, they win 28-27 on that two-point conversion at the very end. But the adjusted score, because of the drop passes, uh, because of the general offensive success of the Ravens, uh, the Ravens actually were a little bit better according to the adjusted scores, 24-22. to um, Trevor Lawrence. We're gonna, The talk is going to be about Lawrence in this game. Yeah, Lawrence was really, really good. 321 yards, 8.7 yards per attempt, three touchdowns, no interceptions. All that stuff's pretty good. Failed on the fourth and one. How much is that on him versus the rest of the team? I don't know. Uh, four sacks, though, for 27 yards. Some of those pretty significant. That one, was a that's a little disappointing for him. Something to keep an eye on in this game. Uh, other things that happen. But again, let's go over to Lamar Jackson here, right? 89 rushing yards on 14 carries. Hugely important there. Um, 254 passing yards, 7.9 yards per attempt, a touchdown, no interceptions. He did lose a fumble though on the fourth and one attempt where it's not really a lost fumble. It's more like you're trying to desperately try to, to reach out and get it. Um, and he actually had a higher expected points added per play. Well, basically the same 
as Trevor Lawrence in this game. So something to think about. Another good good point for Lawrence. We talk about how he's been playing. Accuracy has been an issue for him. He had he was twelve percent over expectation. His completion percentage uh, was seventy eight percent in this game, whereas you would have expected based upon depth of target, all that stuff, a sixty six percent completion percentage. So he was over that amount. Decision time here. Let's talk about the decisions because a bunch of things happened at the end of this game that were hugely important in its decision, its game management, it's how it all came together for the Jaguars with one thing that that I would say kind of went wrong for the Jaguars or could have gone massively wrong for the Jaguars. Um, and that was the squib kick at the end, but we'll, we'll get into that. So all the decision stuff here. So we're talking about the final drive here. Let's talk about the final drive for the Jaguars. because This is what's important. And this is, they have the ball. It is, oh, let's see. Well, let's not talk about the final drive, actually. Let's talk about a little bit earlier. They went for it on a fourth and eight, which I thought was pretty huge in, in this game. I'm sorry, a fourth and five, which I thought was, no, sorry, fourth and eight. Let's go back to the fourth and eight. So with eight minutes and 44 seconds left. Okay, this is one, not the final drive. Let's, sorry, let's rewind a little bit here. Uh, it's 1910 Baltimore. So again, Baltimore almost had another one of these 10 point lead games that they end up uh, losing eventually fourth and eight at the Baltimore 45 yard line is you're down nine points. You have all of your timeouts, all of that sort of stuff. I could see a lot of teams not going for it in this situation. Um, but it's one of those things where if you punt the ball, you have a 6% win probability. That's it. You go for it and you succeed. You're up to 14% win probability. It's just, you know, more than doubling your chance of eventually winning the game. Trevor Lawrence has an awesome pass to Zay Jones, a 27 yard gain on that one. That one ends up being huge because if you look at that drive, that's a drive that eventually, eventually leads up leads to a touchdown. They convert this. They had the ball at the 18 yard line. A number of plays later, they eventually get a touchdown on this game to cut it to, to make it 1917. So huge, huge, huge decision there. Decisions you need to make where, yeah, if you don't make it, you're killing yourself down nine in this game, potentially, but you have to go for it. You have to make it great decision there by Doug Peterson in the final drive. A couple of big, big plays I thought were great decisions. One is right before the touchdown. So it's third and six. They have the ball at the 39-yard line. They get a 29-yard deep pass to Zay Jones, which takes them down to the Baltimore 10. This is an example. There's 30-something seconds left. This is an example where it's counting down. You're getting down to about 20 seconds left. This is an example where, I don't know, I would say nine times out of 10, the coach gets down there, gets the ball at the 10, spikes it. Says, you know what? We don't have a lot of time left anyway. Let's just go ahead, spike the ball. We're not ready. I don't know what to do for a pass here. And we'll use those next three downs to potentially score. They don't spike the ball. I love it not spiking the ball. First of all, you get that down back. You might not have even had time for it necessarily to go through all four downs, but at least you have that probability. Number two, have a play ready that you can just run, where they're basically kind of running a fade-ish sort of play. Uh, which ends up going to Marvin Jones for the touchdown. Just have that play ready and run it because if it's incomplete, you stop the clock anyway right there and you get a chance for a touchdown. And number three is after a long play, not only is the offense a little bit out of whack, but the defense is a little bit out of whack. You've changed from being 
on the 39-yard line down to being in the 10-yard line. You're in a vastly different situation there defensively. If you're prepared and you're ready to go and you know what you're doing offensively in this situation, you have a huge advantage there. Have that preparedness, have that game management, be ready to go. So another you know, check mark here for our Jaguars. We're ready to go in that situation. Gets the matchup they want, gets the touchdown. Uh, the two-point conversion attempt. This is one that was like, is it or is it not a quote-unquote analytics decision? I, you know, this whole thing of like, is something an analytics decision or not, I think is a bit of a false dichotomy as far as what happens in these games. Analytics, and I'm going to go back to the quasi Adolfo Mensa definition on this, is that it's about being thoughtful and being intentional. It's not necessarily about the tools. People always look at the tools. I agree that like you can't know the win probability in the second quarter on your own 33-yard line on fourth and one without having some of these analytical tools, whereas this type of decision, you say, we make it, we win, we miss it, we lose. What is that probability versus most likely going to overtime and winning or losing. So it's a little bit easier to figure out, but you're st- it's still like an intentional sort of thing. And it's still something where you have to think about at what point in time you are doing it because there's only 14 seconds left on this play when they score the touchdown. That is the ideal time if you are going to go for two at the end of the game. You're the underdog. You're Jacksonville. You're a slight underdog in this game. So that's something to consider, which means you have a you should want to get, end the game in regulation if you can. Um, how good is your team at converting? You have a running quarterback who's pretty good at converting, so it gives you a decent conversion chance on this one. Although they don't end up running it, it's still something to think about. And with only 14 seconds, it's very, very unlikely the other team is going to have a chance to score and go ahead. If there is more time left in the game, if there's something like 30 seconds left in the game, you scoring that two-point conversion gives the other team massive um, incentive to take all kinds of risks with the ball when they get it back to eventually end up scoring themselves and then winning the game. So this was a, it's still analytical in a way that you're thinking less than 30 seconds is when you want to do this. And that's the time they did in this game. Now they almost made a massive mistake at the squib kick at the end because they squib kick it out there. I didn't see it happen because I was watching red zone, but the first play Baltimore runs on the next drive again, down by a point with about 10 seconds left to go, is on their own 39-yard line. I understand you don't want to kick it deep necessarily and run the risk of a touchdown return, but make sure that squib kick gets beyond the 40-yard line, for God's sake, because they were able to you know, gain 12 yards and at least get an attempt, a 67-yard attempt, which ended up coming pretty woefully short, honestly, from Justin Tucker on that one, although it looked good in the air. Um, but almost like that would have been like the mistake of the of the season if that squib kick would have given Baltimore enough room to um, enough advance here, starting at their own 40 yard line to get the field goal to eventually win the game. So it didn't end up happening. Our Jaguars still intact on this one. Uh, Playoff probabilities. Let's talk about that real fast coming out of this one. So Baltimore is one of the biggest losers of the week. Their chance to make the playoffs, which was extremely high was in the 90 something percent is now down to 84%. Their chance to win the division down 17% to 62%. So it's really them and the Bengals now. They have an easier schedule than the Bengals do going forward. So that's going to help them in this one. But it's gone down from being like they were almost a you know a lock to win the division, near 80% to win the division. Now 
about doubling the chances that the Bengals will end up winning this one and winning the division going forward. Again, keep keep an eye. Keep an eye on our Jaguars going forward, uh, especially for the 2023 season. All right, let's go to Cleveland here. Another one of the teams that adjusted scores love so much, and they come through in this one uh, on the third possession of overtime with a long pass to Amari Cooper, which eventually sets up a touchdown. Bouchette looked to throw on third down. There he goes to Cooper. Wide open. Cooper makes the catch inside the 10 for the 5 and tackled at the 2. Yes, yes. Amari Cooper down to the 2-yard line, making up for maybe it was one of the worst drops of the season. We talk about drops, whether they're you know 100% or 50% on the receiver. This is like 100% one on the receiver where Amari Cooper had a massive drop on a 4th and 9 that um, – the the Browns would have converted earlier in this game, but still ends up with seven catches, 94 yards, including this catch down to the two where they eventually plunge it in uh, with Nick Chubb a little bit later in this game. And I think coming out of this game, what you're going to be hearing a lot about potentially is Jacoby Brissett, maybe, you know, him coming through with a victory in his last game, whether or not he should be a starter next year, how many quarterbacks is he better than, and this and that. You know, Brissett actually wasn't that great in this game. He had negative expected points added per play. Um, you know, he was okay. He was fine. His, his you know, the, the 5.7 yards per attempt, four sacks. The sacks came back. That's always really bad for Brissett. Four sacks for 32 yards. So he was fine. He just wasn't, you know, he didn't win this game for him. He didn't play nearly as well as you'd seen him play in, in other games in this one. You know, Tom Brady was slightly better by the EPA numbers in this game. We really want to go to, if we're going to talk about the numbers of the game, and I think you want to go to the much maligned Cleveland Browns defense in this one. Seven is the number of the game, and that is the Bucks failed to score any points on seven straight drives to end the game in this one, including a drive that they had in overtime. We're getting in overtime. They only needed a field goal because the, the Browns had the ball first. They get the ball. All they need is a field goal to win. Can't, can't get down the field. Can't score a field goal on this one. Really, really tough game there for the Bucks. And if we look at the big plays of the game, and surprisingly in this one, again, the, um, the, the, well, actually, let's get the particulars here. So the Bucks are five and six coming out of this. Cleveland's four and seven. According to my adjusted scores, Cleveland would be eight and three if you just went by the adjusted scores this season. So obviously, you, you know, you don't play for adjusted scores. You play for real scores. But at least it's an idea of like, God, they, they really had a great chance. If you're a Browns fan, you're kicking yourself right now. With Deshaun Watson coming back, this easily could have been a team that was, you know, at worst five and six, maybe six and five handing it over to Watson. Now you're four and seven. You basically got to win out here, uh, win five in a row or six in a row, excuse me, to have a chance in the AFC in a pretty stacked AFC here. Tampa Bay was a three-point favorite in this game. Cleveland wins by six. The adjusted score, 22-20, a little bit more narrow towards Cleveland. There's a few reasons for that. One is, you know, they got the fourth and 10 conversion on an an unbelievable one-handed catch from David Njoku. Uh, near the end so there's that one there we also had a the fourth biggest play of the game was a 31 yard end around from Anthony Schwartz for a touchdown you know you don't see that happen that much I guess it was a reverse actually uh, to Anthony Schwartz for a touchdown you don't necessarily see that one happen 
happen that often. I got they got unlucky on the fourth down, as I mentioned, but they had a couple lucky plays that go in their favor, which ends up making it a little bit more narrow than you think in this one. What do we have to say about Tampa Bay? Like they're given every opportunity here to run away with this division. They still have a 75% chance to make the playoffs after this, a 73% chance to win the division. The Falcons and the Saints are doing them favors by not winning any games yet. They just can't win. They just can't do anything. Like, do something. Bucks. Uh, you look at this division here in the NFC South. The Bucks are still leading by half a game over the Atlanta Falcons. They're 5-6. and six. The Falcons are 5-7. and seven. Every team in the division has a negative point differential now. Even the Panthers and the Saints at four and eight are only a game and a half out at this point. I mean, they have a pretty low chance that either one of those teams are being able to come back and win, but still, you know, only a game and a half out at this point. The Bucs are a little bit in a fortunate situation of having a bottom 10 schedule as far as how difficult it is. Not a very difficult schedule going forward, so that's going to help them here. Again, still 73% chance to win the division just because we do not see the Falcons or other teams as being very good. But anything can happen here. And you're just giving more and more and more chances. The Bucs are giving their opponents to eventually be able to get back into this and take away the division for them. Where do the Browns stand at this game right now? Well, 5% chance to make the playoffs. So again, that's about their chance to go ahead and win out in this one. About a league average schedule. Uh, starting next week, Deshaun Watson, the quarterback against the Houston Texans. So that's probably a W you can at least pencil in at this point. All right, let's go to the Jets, the Mike White era. Has the Mike White era begun? I don't know. Should we be talking about the Mike White era? Uh, It's a victory, though, and it may be against the Bears um, defense, which, you know, it's not that challenging, but it's still a victory for Mike White as he unlocks Garrett Wilson Elijah Moore, and the other Jets receivers. A deep drop lets the routes develop. One of his first downfield shots has Garrett Wilson. Makes no more miss. Turns on the afterburners. He's gone. Touchdown Jets. New York takes the lead. Yeah, it was a little surprising because New York taking the lead here. is a little bit surprising that the Bears, it faded quickly, but the Bears were kind of hanging in there for a little bit and then they just you know refused to to score the rest of the game we started to wonder about this vaunted Jets defense a little bit early in this game but let's talk about Mike Waite because he's the the man of the hour or the man of the week uh, in New York City the number of the game is 16.7 so that's the expected points added on Mike White plays in this game so when he dropped back the pass on those plays the Jets added 16.7 more points than would have been expected if we look back and we say Zach Wilson, the highest total that Zach Wilson has this season in his seven starts is a little bit over two. So 16.7 versus two for Zach Wilson so far this season. The most Zach Wilson has in his career is around 8.7 last year against the Jaguars. He had a, he had a, you know, the, the crumbling Jaguars. He had a decent game, but still about half of the expected points added that we have for Mike White in this game. Yeah, he got, he had an easy opponent, but guess what? What you do is, you beat easy opponents. Good teams beat easy opponents. So we can only play who's in front of you. Mike White ends the game with 0.6 EPA per play, which is an outstanding number. He has a 
short A dot. Now, this is going to be his thing. 5.8 yards on the A dot. He's not going to stretch the field. That was one of the few plays where he stretched the field. And it was a little squirrely, honestly, throwing it into a bunch of uh, coverage here. And Garrett Wilson makes a play and takes it down uh, the field. But 8.6 completion percentage over expected. Just, you know, do the easy stuff, right? Do the easy stuff. Sometimes you're going to get the 56-yard touchdown by just completing the pass. But sometimes you just got to, you know, matriculate the ball down the field. And he completes 78.6% of his completions, of his passes, versus a 70% expectation in the game. Jets are pretty good running the ball, too, which is great. They're about a 50-50 run-pass ratio. They didn't have to run it a lot, especially in the second half in this one. And again, the Bears started off okay. They ran the ball fairly well in this game, but then the passing game, Fell apart, fell apart down the stretch. And outside of a, you know, Sauce Gardner got dealt with by uh, Clay's, uh, Chase Claypool on one play that went down the sideline, which was one of the bigger plays. The second biggest play, actually the biggest play of the game for the Bears offense was a 31-yard catch down the sideline where there was a DPI that was ended up being declined on this one. Other than that, not a whole lot going on for this Bears offense. Again, doing what you need to do here, plus getting some big plays. Like, let your receivers, let these first round, second round, high draft pack, uh, high draft pick receivers do things for you, right? Two biggest plays for the Jets: that fifty-four yard touchdown there, which is four point six expected points added. They also had a forty-two yard touchdown to Elijah Moore, three point six expected points added. Let's do it. A twenty-two yard touchdown to Elijah Moore, two point nine expected yards, expected uh, points added. That's how you do things. You know, just let those guys make plays for you. Elijah Moore, though, he only had those two catches because, again, it wasn't a pass-heavy volume sort of game. But still, looking really good there. Tyler Conklin adding 50 yards. Uh, Zonovan Knight? They didn't even know this guy existed, On quite honestly. Actually, I did know he existed, but I didn't think he was going to be jumping over James Robinson, the depth chart. And I know Michael Carter got a little bit injured in this game, an ankle injury, but... Uh, Knight ended up 14 yards and 69 carries and then also had three catches for 34 yards. So I don't know if Carter stays injured, fantasy footballers, maybe you could look at what to do with Knight in this game. That is a weird situation with quarterbacking where it was like Trevor Simeon's going to start, then he hurt his oblique, then it was going to be Nathan Peterman, and then it was back to Trevor Simeon. Um, not a whole lot to talk about, though, because it wasn't the most meaningful game, but meaningful from the perspective of Mike White definitely established himself for another week here. Uh, the Jets up to seven and four on the season. That's meaningful. Uh, they cover, congratulations, as nine point favorites, 31 to 10 in this game. And the adjusted score, uh, 26 to 16. So, again, there were some of those big plays there, but, you know, we'll, we'll, let's give them credit where, where they belong. And playoff wise, not a huge difference in the playoffs because they were such a huge favorite in this game. They were expected to win this game. They move up a few percent here. They're up to about a little bit under 60% chance to make the playoffs. So the Jets are in the hunt. And this is why you had to make the move. This is why I advocated for it um, on last Tuesday's pod. You had to make this move because you got to make the playoffs. This is your chance. Let's do it, Jets, while you have this defense because you just don't know if you're going to have the same sort of defense in play next season. All right, a game with surprisingly high playoff implications we're going to go to next in the morning, and that's when the Falcons go against the Washington Commanders, and Mariota keeps on having these decent games in terms of optically, like, his efficiency, 
But near the end, mistakes happen, whether it's tipped or not, or whatever ends up happening here. The commander's defense, which has been playing extremely well, especially since week six, comes through at the end to secure the victory. Ariota, the pass, it's deflected in the air! It is picked off potentially by Washington! It is! It's Kendall Fuller! Yes, Kendall Fuller with the game-sealing interception with one minute left right on the goal line in this one. And let's go ahead and get into implications when it comes to the number of the game on this one. And we're going to say 21. Commanders, playoff probability up 21% based on all the different action that we saw this week. It's not only did they win, Bucks lose. Of course, they beat the Falcons, which is one of their competitors for getting one of these last uh, playoff spots in the NFC. The Giants lose earlier in the week. That helps them out a bit. Green Bay loses, which kind of you know throws some dirt on them. It's pretty much done. Uh, the New Orleans Saints lose. The Seattle Seahawks lose. The Arizona Cardinals lose. All of these... All these teams losing here, all that combines to give a 20% jump to the commanders here. They're up to 68% chance to win the playoffs. And we're talking about a wild card here. They're not going to win the division right now. Uh, basically, no chance of them winning the division. But hey, they're locked in. They're seven and five. They're they're more than frisky at this at this point. Um they were three and a half point favorites in this game. They win 19-13. The adjusted score 23-20 towards the commanders so eh, you know a little bit more narrow than the actual score but not a whole lot more narrow one other thing to talk about and this is from a pff or timo risque talking about the commanders and the run that they've been on here the improbability of the run they've been on here maybe commanders fans are going to start hating me after a while if they continue to win and make the playoffs so since week six and some of this includes some carson wentz games in here since week six the commanders have generated Negative 0.08 EPA per pass play, which ranks 27th out of 32 NFL teams. Their record is 6-1 in in that time span. The best record in the NFL since week 6. The Eagles are 5-1, so they're close. But 6-1 record since week 6 for the Commandos. (laughs) Yet, they're not playing that well. But they are 6-1, and one and they're charging toward the playoffs. Again, you log those victories, right? Who cares what nerds like me are saying about you uh, when it's the Vikings or it's the Commanders or whoever? As long as you're logging those victories, we are going to recognize the fact that you have a pretty good shot now at making the playoffs. Uh, Heineke didn't really do that much in this game. 23 pass attempts for 138 yards, 6 yards per attempt. He had a pick in this one. Brian Robinson, huge Brian Robinson game. 18 carries for 105 yards. He had someone who didn't really look like he had a ton of juice, but he had some big plays in this game, a 21-yard rush in this game. He also had two catches for 20 yards and a touchdown where he showed a lot of power and balance there. So maybe he's getting back, you know, back into the swing of things after having had um, the gunshot wound earlier this year, which is a weird thing to talk about for players. You probably don't have a lot of experience of like how long does it take you to get right from a gunshot wound, but it seems like Brian Robinson, at least in this game, looked like he got right against, you know, not the greatest uh, defense for the Falcons. Again, it was a game where Mariota was like, okay, 
his EPA per play was basically flat, and that includes that interception, that tipped interception at the end of the uh, at the end of the game there, which was the biggest play of the game, which took their win probability down from about being a fifty percent chance to win to the game being over on this one. So I don't know. It doesn't seem like they're going to make the move to Desmond Ritter. Again, they're not eliminated from the playoffs, so maybe they'll continue to wait for them to be eliminated. They're still sitting, according to our numbers, with about a 15 20% chance to make the playoffs. They're only half a game behind the Bucks at this point, so they're probably not going to make that move to Ritter based upon um, Mariota, who, again, had 49 yards rushing. That's been like a secret weapon that he's had that's helped keep his numbers afloat this entire time. But when you look at the offense, you know, not scoring points, only 13 points, um, and running the ball. They've just been so good running the ball. Part of that is, is Mariota again, but still running the ball. They were adding about 0.2 EPA per play, 55% success rate running the ball, negative 0.2, 38% success rate dropping back to pass. Now they barely draw back to pass. You know, they, they were, they ran more than pass in this game. They were about 15% under expectation as far as their pass rate. So they continue to lean heavily into the run. So maybe it doesn't matter who their quarterback is according to that, but I don't know. Probably should be Ritter time, but we'll see exactly what ends up happening in this one. Commanders, lock it in, though. We're talking about the hated commanders, at least when it comes to their ownership, sitting with a cool, very nice 69% chance to make the playoffs at this point. Let's finish up some of these morning games here. Not the most exciting stuff. Miami handles its business um, at home against the Houston Texans. 179 yards a game on the ground. Tonga Vailoa looking, now giving chase. Here comes Houston to a, to the end zone. Touchdown! Durham Smythe just masterful from Tonga Vailoa. Tua with the score to open the game. A few more scores thereafter. Um... Maybe if you look at the final score, you see 30-15 and you think, oh, not, you know, not a bad effort. But I think most people were aware of kind of how this one broke down. And that goes to the number of the game here, which is eight. So the Texans either punted or turned it over, including one fumble six on eight straight drives to begin this game. Whereas the Dolphins started field goal, touchdown, they did punt. Uh, touchdown, field goal, field goal, 27 nothing at halftime. I'm oh, sorry, 30 nothing at halftime. And then, you know, the Texans get a couple of scores later on in the game. My boy, Skylar Thompson, did not come to play in the second half here. Um, he may only had 10 plays, but still about lost about 10 expected points on his 10 plays. Uh, Tua didn't have the greatest game, but I think he'll still maintain being number one in EPA per play since he did have, he did add about 0.25 EPA per play in this game. Uh, where will he stand? Let's let, let's, let's look really quickly in grading right now on the season. Now, some of this is subject to review, but where does Tua sit here for, um, for grading so far in the season? Cause remember he was number one in passing grade too. So let's pull this up. What do we have here? Up, oh, still number one. So he's still, according to these un, uh, these numbers not been confirmed yet, still number one passing grade in the NFL, 91.2. Patrick Mahomes second at 89. Joe Burrow third at 85. So a decent distance between him and Burrow at number three. 
I mean, is there a lot to talk about in this game? I don't know. I mean, like I said, Tua handled business while he was in there. They were up big. Kyle Allen stunk. Uh, negative 0.3 EPA per play, 5% completions under under expected, only a 5A dot. It was not stretching the ball at all down the field. Uh, the rushing game was okay for Houston. I'm sure anyone who has Damian Pierce on their fantasy team is just hating life recently. Five carries, eight yards. Uh, Dare Ogumbawale. Yeah, didn't really hit the – didn't nail that one. Uh, 14 yards, and he ends up getting the touchdown, so that probably did not make – uh, Damian Pierce fantasy fantasy managers very happy there again nothing else really to talk about this game log the victory that you needed to get move on in life Miami 90% chance to make the playoffs now been moving up steadily each and every week uh, 30% chance to win the division eight and three on the season adjusted score only 17 to six Miami so low adjusted score Miami was getting some longer plays and some conversions than you wouldn't necessarily expect early in the game and it was really held down by just like how god awful the numbers were in the second half again this is kind of a game we can just throw away and not really worry about the implications other than the fact that Miami logs the W in this one another game that we could probably throw away uh, the you know, the Broncos wish they could throw away. They wish they could throw away this entire season. And that's when they went to Carolina. And the Panthers are winning again. Darnold for the end zone. DJ Moore has it. And yeah! That's a Panther touchdown. Yes, yes, yes. A Panther touchdown. DJ Moore is back. Um, Sam Darnold unlocking. DJ Moore here, four catches, 103 yards, and a touchdown. Sam Darnold didn't have to do a whole lot because of how inept the Denver Broncos offense was. 164 yards on 19 attempts. 8.6, though, per attempt. So that's all you can measure is per attempt. Didn't take any sacks against a good Broncos defense, so that's pretty good. And he also had a touchdown. He, He had this thing where he kind of fumbled the ball, recovered it, and then rolled into the end zone for a touchdown there. His EPA per play, about 0.3 EPA per play. So not bad at all. Not a lot of plays, but not bad at all for Darnold. Okay, talking about the game, though. Broncos offense continues to be the story. There's no other way to talk about it. Worst trade in history people are talking about for this one. We'll see. Still a little early on the Russell Wilson trade, but the number of the game is nine, negative nine. That was the net passing yards. So netting out sacks for the Broncos through their first five drives of the game. Russell Wilson finishes, and he scored some at the end of this game. He put together a little bit at the end of this game. Um, finishes with 125 yards on 35 passing attempts. So some quick math there. That is 3.5 net yards per attempt. Three sacks for 17 yards as part of that. Latavius Murray, Murray was actually running the ball well. 6.4 yards per carry. The Denver offense is just the passing offense cannot get anything, anything, anything done. We saw a little drama with some defensive players yelling at Russell Wilson, everything else there. Uh, Again, there's not much that they can do to get out of this contract here in the near future. Nathaniel Hackett is pretty much a dead man walking. They probably roll him through the end of the season, but I don't see there's any chance of him coming back here. Uh, Starting to get some buzz here for Steve Wilkes, potentially coming back for the Panthers. I'm not sure. We'll see. I think Tepper will be the owner for the uh, Panthers. Will be a little bit too tempted to look to see where else he could go and spend some spend some money. You know, overpay for a coach like he did for Matt Rule. 
and potentially bring someone of his choosing in on this one. And we also have to think about, I know they're three and three since Wilkes has taken over versus being bad before. But when you think about interim coaches and you also think about new head coaches for the season, uh, head coaches very often new first year head coaches very often win coach of the year. And one of the reasons is that let's say you have how a team is playing versus their underlying strength right? Versus their real underlying strength, because you have this variance on how you play. So it goes up and down. It's kind of like a wave, wave, a wave, another wave, another wave, it goes up and down. So if you're going to replace a coach, whether it's an interim head coach or a new coach the next season, very unlikely you're going to be replacing them when you're on the top of a wave. You know, you're probably going to be replacing them on the bottom of a wave. So when a team gets a little bit of a bounce going forward, how much you want to attribute specifically to the coach and it's not just for Wilkes here I'm not just I'm not trying to downgrade Wilkes this is like a this is just like an overall thematic sort of issue whether it's Jeff Saturday it's Wilkes it's you know Kevin O'Connell taking over this year for the Vikings all that sort of stuff you think how the team's playing versus their underlying talent versus their underlying strength is normally low so the new coaches get a little bit of a boost like they're more likely than not to do better going forward if they want to roll with Wilkes I think he's looked more than functionally good. I don't see any problem with that, of course, at all going into next season. But I guess I'm skeptical that that's what Tepper will end up doing. All right, let's toss this game aside. Let's get out of here. Uh, Relatively unharmed. Let's get into the afternoon games here. And we're going to start in Arizona with the Cardinals actually playing pretty well. But then, again, another two-point conversion, another successful two-point conversion with about less than 20 seconds to go, uh, this time for the Los Angeles Chargers. Trying for two. Got it. They've got the lead. It's the tight end, Jared Everett. Everett yes, has got, they the- got the lead there. The Chargers score right at the end of the game. They end up winning 25-24. to 24. Nice little setup here on this Gerald Everett play. I mean, maybe it was Isaiah Simmons being lost defensively, but, man, was that an easy one. We had, we had a lot of directionally guys going a few different directions, a little late release for Gerald Everett. He ends up being wide open. They convert the two and they win the game. Number of the game here. Cardinals offense was actually good in this one. Pretty good offense in this one, despite the fact that they scored 24 points, which isn't, you know, isn't fantastic, but it's not bad. But we have to highlight, and this is me like something that Cliff Kingsbury is going to be asked about. Zero is the number of the game. And that's the Cardinals first downs. So even getting a first down. In the fourth quarter of the game on four different possessions that they have. I'm, I'm going to include the last possession. I know they barely had any time, but they look so woefully inept even on that possession in the couple of plays that they had. Then I'm going to go ahead and throw it in there, which allowed the comeback in this one. Because my adjusted score actually had the Cardinals being better, 24 to 19 in this game, uh, even though they lost 25 to 24. You look at some of the overall numbers for the game. Uh, 5.7 yards per play for the Cardinals versus 4.9 for the Chargers. The bad luck plays, the big bad luck plays for the Cardinals. Car- uh, James Conner had a fumble. They missed a 49-yard field goal, which is not you know a super makeable one, but it's one that you should make. Uh, they had a failure on a fourth and one. Those are big, big plays. The James Conner fumble was the most impactful play of the game, negative 5.3 expected points. And you go back a little bit further, the fourth most impactful play of the game is the missed field goal, negative 3.5 expected points. 
And then even further, negative 2.2 expected points for that interception, which came on the fourth and one. So, God, just a few plays can make a huge, huge, huge difference in this one because they played well, I think, internally. They got pressure on Herbert. And I don't know if this is a Herbert thing. This is just the, the offensive line completely falling apart because Herbert had been the best at avoiding sacks this season up until a couple of weeks ago because he had four sacks in this game. He had five last week. So he had 10 sacks in his first eight games of the season. Herbert, and this is when he was just, you know, super outstanding. I know uh, they, lo- they lost uh, Slater. They lost some other guys in the offensive line. So that's definitely part of this. 10 sacks in first eight games. Now he has 11 sacks over the last three games. 3.7 yard average depth of target for Herbert in this game. So he's taking four sacks despite the fact that they're not trying almost at all to throw the ball down the field. I mean, Kyler Murray had a 10.1 A dot in this game. Kyler Murray averaged 0.3 expected points per play. Justin Herbert, 0.1. So Herbert didn't have a bad game, but not a good game there by any stretch of the imagination. 5.8 yards per attempt, and then you net out the 28 um, sack yards, and it goes well below five here for Herbert in this game. Hey, anyway, you get the W's, you get the W's, right? Um, going to decision-making here, Staley is just, you know, he's not been, he's not been our, he's not been our, our chosen one anymore this season. Uh, they end up winning the game, but there was one decision where they had the ball fourth and six on the Arizona 48. Kind of similar decision as we saw Doug Peterson went for it in a similar type of decision here where there was 10 minutes and 59 seconds left in the fourth quarter. They're in the dead zone there. You can't kick a field goal. It's fourth and six. You have Justin Herbert as your quarterback. No, nope, they punted it. It was the worst decision of the week, according to win probability added. They would have added 4.5 win probability. They ended up winning the game. You know, you still win the game, even if you make some bad decisions. But Staley continues to do this stuff, which is a little bit tilting. Where do the Chargers stand now in the standings? Well, the Chargers are five and five. So actually, they can't be five and five. They have to have one more game here. Are they six and five? The Chargers are six and five. My apologies. And that puts them at a in a very tough AFC, a 41% chance to make the playoffs. Basically, no chance to win the division at this point. 41% chance to make the playoffs. Not bad. What's their schedule coming up here? That's going to determine a lot of this because they have about a league average-ish sort of schedule going forward. And again, offensive line is not doing so hot. Uh, they face the Raiders, who are pretty good, actually, at the Raiders. That's one, you know... I'm not sure the Chargers will even be favored in that game. Maybe a point or something like that. Uh, They're going at home against the Miami Dolphins. There are probably a lot of Dolphins fans at that game. Titans, Colts, Rams, who, you know, the Rams might have shut down the entire season by then. And then the Broncos at Denver to end the the season. That'll be at least an interesting one. It's never easy to play in Denver. Could be some conditions, snowy conditions there in early January. And, You know, maybe the Broncos will try to make a statement at the end of the year and do something, right, to end up winning this game. Cardinals, obviously, we forked them. They are done. They're out. They're not in the playoffs. We'll see all the discussion about Kingsbury and Steve Keim and all that. Maybe maybe they'll be more likely to let Kingsbury go now that we've seen Matt Rule get a coaching job and all that guarantee money that he had, I believe, is offset by the fact that he's going to make tons and tons of money uh, for Nebraska now. So I don't know if Kingsbury is going to get a job as easily, 
but maybe if they fire Kingsbury, they can keep their fingers crossed that he won't just decide to, you know, count checks and hang out uh, on the beach in California, um, you know, going after beach babes all day long. And he'll actually want to go coach in college again, and they can offset some of that money that they just signed him to a five-year extension in the offseason. All right, let's go to um, you know, maybe the game of the afternoon here, an overtime win for the Las Vegas Raiders against the fighting Geno Smiths, uh, all done in Seattle. And Josh Jacobs is a story of the game. Jacobs. Jacobs with running room right up the middle. Jacobs is on his way. The Raiders are going to win this game. Yes, Josh Jacobs with a walk-off touchdown to end this game. And 86 yards, walk-off touchdown, third possession of overtime. This is another game. We had three possessions with teams, you know, not scoring at all on the first couple of possessions. Third possession of overtime here. So Seattle had their chances. Geno Smith had his chance to win this game. But we have to talk about Jacobs and the number of the game here, 176. That is the yards after contact, after contact for Josh Jacobs in this game. 176 yards after contact in this game. And of course, in total, 39 touches for Josh Jacobs, 303 total yards and two touchdowns. So yeah, he got the 86 yard touchdown at the end to boost up his stats, but still, you know, you take that away, you're still well over 200 yards and a touchdown. Obviously the fantasy football player of the year, the league winner of the year. I think he's second in fantasy football scoring amongst running backs. And he was like, I don't know, seventh, eighth, ninth round pick or something like that. So the man of the year in fantasy football, which of course we care about a lot on this podcast. Uh, I have, not, I have the, the records backwards on this one. So the Raiders are now four and seven. So, hey, you know, not, not great or anything, but at least making, maybe going to keep Josh McDaniel's job. Although I think they would have, I mean, he would have kept his job. I think almost no matter what, just being the type of play, the type of person and the, you know, a little bit of gravitas there for, for him. Right. So I think he would have kept his job no matter what, but at least playing him into some victories here. And again, they have that chargers matchup next week, which is going to be big. Uh, They can continue to, you know, maybe stack some wins here at the end of the season. They need to definitely win out in order to have a chance to make it into the playoffs. So can they win six straight games? Probably not, but there's a little smidgen of hope here. Uh, a lot of points scored in this one, 40 to 34 for Vegas. Uh, and the adjusted score has it being about an even game, 29 to 28. Uh, Gino. Gino's one of these guys where he always has the completion percentage over, over expected. But I feel like the, almost like he makes things too difficult on himself or the offense makes it too difficult for him because he's 10% completions over expected. But his EPA per play is positive at 0.12. But you know, not like nearly as big of a number as you might expect. Um, 8.9 yards per attempt, which is really, really good, but he has a tendency to take sacks. Also three sacks for 21 yards in this one. He had a pick and then he had another dropped interception in the end zone. So his grading is not going to be that great on this one. They're starting to, a little bit of the shine is coming off of Gino. He's still seventh in passing grade this season. So it's not like he's falling that far, but in the next couple of weeks through the end of the season, we'll see if he maintains that number in the top 10 uh, for the rest of the year. Going to 
playoff chances here and the Raiders sit there with a cool 5% chance to make the playoffs. So one out of every 20 seasons, you can one every 20 times they can come back here and make the playoffs and the playoff differential loss here, Seattle down 10% down to 56% chance to make the playoffs. According to our numbers, I think they're a little bit higher in the market right now for their chance to make it, but we're going to have to concentrate here on the schedule. They have a middling schedule going forward, but with San Francisco pulling away, it's really going to be competing for that wild card spot. And they're going to need some teams to start losing. They're going to need the commanders to start losing. They're going to need the giants to continue losing. Um, they have the Rams next week. So that's a pretty good timing for them. Cause I don't think Matthew Stafford's going to be back for that one. So they got the Rams, then the Panthers. Okay. That's a pretty good two game stretch for them. Then at home against the 49ers, which will be a huge game at Kansas city at home against the jets who are pretty good. And then the Rams again. So if Matthew Stafford doesn't come back, you might be logging like two pretty easy W's against the Rams for them. Then you got the Panthers. And then you say, we just got to win a game against Kansas city, San Francisco and the jets. we got to win one of those. And if you can win one of those, That'll be logging four more victories here. You add four wins. They'll be 10 and seven. Eh, That'll probably be good enough to get them in. So I like Seattle's chances to make the Super Bowl. I mean, to make the playoffs this year and continue going forward. One thing to think about, though, uh, kind of like under the radar, maybe-ish sort of disappointment for Walker, Kenneth Walker, because he keeps on getting touchdowns. He got two touchdowns in this game, but... 26 yards on 14 carries, 1.9 yards per carry. Over the last two weeks, 43 yards on 24 carries. So less than two yards per carry the last two weeks for Walker. Um, There's actually some bad decisioning here by Josh McDaniel. Fourth and one, down three, seven yards from the own opponent end zone in the third quarter. They did not go for it. It was a very, very strong go for it. I mean, they end up winning the game, but of course they had to go to overtime in the third possession of overtime in order to do it. All right, let's get to the defensive effort of the week, maybe. I don't know. There's some turnovers as part of this year. The San Francisco 49ers shut out the New Orleans Saints. Throws it short. Camara at the three, at the two. Ball is out! Francisco's got it. The scoreless streak continues in the second half. Yes, the scoreless streak in the second half continues, which I'll get to in a second. But first, we'll start with the number of the game. And Kamara comes into play here, 9.8. That's the expected points lost on two Alvin Kamara fumbles. Those are the two biggest plays of the game. That play there at the end, where they still had a pretty low chance of winning. I mean, they needed to score there, then hold it or onside kick or whatever they would decide to do and then get the ball back again and then score another touchdown and then they would have a chance to win. So, you know, it's, it's at the goal line. So there's something. There was some, like, inkling of hope, but not a whole lot going on there. But even earlier in the game, Kamara had another fumble, which actually ended up being the second most impactful play of the game. So the first is the fumble at the goal line as far as EPA lost. The second is um, – actually, no, no, I'm sorry. That's wrong. The first fumble was actually, actually – the, the, the fumble he had earlier in the game, which was in the first quarter on first and 10 at the 41-yard line, was the most impactful play of the game. Um, the fumble recovery there. And the second most was this fumble on the goal line. 
San Francisco didn't have to do a lot offensively. Jimmy Garoppolo about flat EPA. Um, he had a tipped ball that ended up being a touchdown that I'm sure everyone will point to and say, you know, Jimmy stinks because of this. And it's good just to see the 49ers. They can win a whole bunch of different ways. And that's what they've been able to do with the dominant defensive performance. Now they have guys coming back and being healthy, or they could be somewhat dominant, pretty dominant offensively in some of these games like they were last week, which makes them one of the teams contending to be the best in the NFC right now. Uh, the Saints dropped to four and eight, but again, I, as I discussed in the NFC South, anything is possible. San Francisco up to seven and four, separating somewhat from the Seattle Seahawks. They were nine point favorites in this game. They amazingly cover, although they only scored 13 points. They win 13 0, adjust to score 23 to 16. And the scoreless streak that was mentioned in this one. So we have four straight games here for the 49ers defense where they have not allowed any points in the second half. That's the scoreless streak that they're talking about here. It's pretty hard to lose when you're not giving up points in the second half uh, of any ball game. Implications for the playoffs in this one, San Francisco up to a 95% chance to make the playoffs, 88% chance to win the division, 19th hardest schedule going forward. So about a middling sort of schedule going forward. They are going to play against the, let's see, they got the Dolphins. That'd be a good game. Uh, Jimmy G versus the new Jimmy G Shanahan versus Mike McDaniel. That'd be a great game. Four Oh five one. So good, a good late game there for us. Um, are they flexing? Can we flex that maybe into primetime? Uh, so they'll be at home against the Miami dolphins bucks next. So those are some interesting games. Seattle. That's a big game. Uh, commanders, Raiders, Cardinals, you know, not a walkover sort of schedule here for the 49ers. So if they have some problems going forward, could be interesting, but I think they're pretty much locked in at least to make the playoffs. And then we'll see what they can do after that point. As far as the Saints are concerned, where are we now for the Saints and their chances to make the playoffs? 9% chance, so not bad. Again, hanging tough because they have a 7% chance to win that division. Even at 4-8, and eight, you can hang tough in that division um, with Tampa Bay struggling so much. All right, before we get to Sunday Night Football, let's round it out here with the afternoon games and in Kansas city, the battered and bruised Rams come to town and the results are pretty much what you expected. Perkins tipped at the line and that's intercepted. Nick Bolton's got that to the 35 still on his feet inside the 30. Dunlap got a piece. Bolton has his second interception in as many weeks of the chiefs. They're fans. Yes, another. I decided to highlight the defense for the Chiefs here. You know, the offense was pretty good for the Chiefs. And I know they weren't exactly facing, you know, great competition, the Chiefs defense. But they kind of helped seal the game here when the offense didn't, you know, struggled a bit here. A very uncharacteristic end zone interception for Patrick Mahomes in the second half of this game. And if you look at what the Rams were doing, at least in the second half of this game, it was punt. They did score a touchdown in the second half to make it 20-10. But then after that, turnover, turnover. And then end of half, they, they, they didn't end up scoring on their final drive. So closing out with a couple of turnovers for this Chiefs defense. Let's get to the number of the game, 8.1. And that's expected points lost on third downs for the Chiefs. So this is what actually held their score down. Normally, they're the best team in the NFL converting on third downs. They're the best team in the NFL as far as adding expected points on third down. They're the best team this season by far. Eagles are second. 
on adding expected points on third and fourth down. In this game, they were negative 8.1. They lost a bunch of expected points on third down. You just don't see that happen very often for this team. So something to highlight and why the score ends up being, um, you know, 26 to 10 in this game, a little bit closer than you might have thought. LA falls to three and eight. Their season is over, over, over. We'll see if Stafford ends up coming back or not. KC up to nine and two. They handle business. It doesn't affect playoff odds that much because they were already a 99% chance to make the playoffs. Now they're a 99% chance to win the division. 36% chance to go to the Super Bowl versus 24% for the Buffalo Bills and 22% to win the Super Bowl. The best odds in the NFL. Anything else to point out in this one? Let's take a look. Uh, Pacheco continues to be the guy on the ground. 22 carries, 69 yards. Not a great average there, but they're just riding him right now. He did get one touchdown, so that's fantasy football players if you're looking for something. That's what you're going to look for. A very well-distributed passing game for Patrick Mahomes. He had that bad interception that we mentioned, but was not sacked against this Rams defense, which appears to be laying down a little bit here. Jalen Ramsey looked completely lost on a early touchdown to Travis Kelsey. But again, so just spread it out here. Four catches for 50, 57 yards for Kelsey, four for 56 for MVS, three for 38 for Juju Smith-Schuster, five for 36 for Sky Moore, two for 26 for Justin Watson, and so on and so forth. Um, in total, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different players who caught the ball for the Kansas City Chiefs in this game. Um, I mean, Bryce Perkins, pretty tough spot here. He had, let's see, 76 net passing yards here on 26 dropbacks. Did have 44 rushing yards. He was able to do something there. Negative um, 0.3 EPA per play. Yeah, it, it's rough. It's rough out in these streets for the Rams, who are basically done for the year. And remember, they don't have their first-round pick. That is property of the Detroit Lions, who are loving – Every single loss there, seeing those racking up because, again, we have the Texans at one nine and one. Other than that, we have the Broncos at three and eight, the Steelers at three and seven, which we'll find out where they go to, the Bears at three and nine, and the Los Angeles Rams at three and eight. So the Rams are right in the mix to pretend. I mean, not the Rams. The 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 Rams are right in the mix to have the second worst record in the NFL, especially if Stafford is shut down. And that means the Detroit Lions are right in the mix to get that pick because they're definitely a team that would want to use it on a quarterback. Steelers, they should want to use it on a quarterback, but I don't know if they will. The Broncos, probably not. Although maybe that gives them an out for like getting out of that Russell Wilson contract, get a rookie in there and a rookie deal. Bears, maybe, maybe not, probably not. I don't know. So a lot of these other teams are not even necessarily looking for a quarterback who have the chance of getting that second pick. All right, let's go to... Sunday night football, Eagles handle business at home in a shootout. I mean, just scoring galore, at least early in the game, against the Green Bay Packers. Packers got to stop them. Sanders got it. And the Eagles are going to get this one. Yeah, not the most exciting one here that I could find for a clip on this one. Miles Sanders closes out the game, runs out the clock at the end of the game. Um... Jordan Love came in, made things interesting. He only had, let's see, nine dropbacks. People are already talking about, you know, maybe we should start 
love for the rest of the season rather than Rogers see what you have because he had a good game. I mean, it was nine dropbacks in pretty much garbage time. There was never higher than a 5% win probability for the Packers in any of these plays near the end of the game, but I don't know. Well, whatever. We'll see what happens there. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit more as part of this, but let's get to the number of the game. That's 16, 16 expected points for Jalen Hurts added on scrambles and design runs. The, Second highest game of the season in that regard. I know Justin Fields has had some really, really high gains, but this was actually very impactful sort of plays when Jalen Hurts was doing it here. He only added 2.2 expected points on his passing when you net out sacks. So 16 running the ball, only two passing the ball in this game. Jalen Hurts, 157 yards rushing. Now we're getting some crazy Crazy, crazy rushing games from quarterbacks this season. 9.2 yards per carry. But but Miles Sanders also, let's not forget Sanders here, 21 carries for 143 yards, two touchdowns. Big fantasy week for Miles Sanders. Add three catches for 17 yards in there. Um, 49 rushing attempts for 363 yards and three touchdowns for the Philadelphia Eagles. The Packers, I mean, one of the things, everyone's going to be talking about Aaron Rodgers, everything else, man. This Packers defense... Come on. Like you were supposed to be also a big part of the Super Bowl contention story this season, not coming through. I know Rodgers hasn't been great by any stretch. It's actually his grading has been okay. His efficiency has not been very good, though. Um, but God, this defense has got to get something done. Uh, Rodgers shockingly picked twice in this game. And if you look at his numbers on. On uh, this season versus prior seasons, he was he was someone that we we meaning me basically uh, complained about being too conservative in the past as far as his willingness to potentially throw interceptions. So let's look over the last number of seasons here for Aaron Rodgers. So we got Aaron Rodgers this year. Um, actually, let me make sure I filter out if he throws an interception on a penalty play. Okay, so let's filter those out. Rodgers this year nine picks. Last year, nine picks already on 254 attempts. Last year, you know, he had closer to 400 attempts in these other seasons. Last year, four picks, five picks the year before, four the year before that. Um, can we even get to a year? Is it possible to find, when was the last time Aaron Rodgers had nine picks in a season? Uh, let's go ahead and look back even further here. Yeah, we got nothing. We got eight picks in 2015. So you got to go back way back early in his career. And 11 turnover-worthy plays this season, which matches his total from last season already. So he has a little bit of bad luck having so many of those turn into picks. But still, a pretty interesting number for, for Rodgers in this game. Christian Watson had a very long 63-yard touchdown, which gives him four for 110 and one touchdown. He continues to have the highest uh, touchdown-to-reception ratio, just an absurd number there. Uh, they actually ran the ball really well, Green Bay, but the scoring was just too much from Philadelphia. Aaron Jones ended up having 43 yards on 12 carries, so not great, but A.J. Dillon is 64 yards on eight carries in this game. Okay, so what are we going to do with Rodgers? You're going to hear buzz about, oh, Justin score on this one, 30-25 Philadelphia, by the way. You're going to hear buzz, I think, about Jordan Love starting the rest of the season. Aaron Rodgers has some comments after the game that may have been interpreted like he's his heart's not in it because he said as long as they haven't been eliminated from playoff contention and at four and eight, they're not officially eliminated from playoff contention at this point, um, though we have them at a 6% chance to make the playoffs. So there's some hope maybe in the NFC. So he said as long as we're not, as long as we're not officially lim- uh, eliminated from playoff contention, 
I want to play. And people kind of took that as like maybe his heart's not in it. I think he was just saying because he's injured, because he has this rib deal now, that he wasn't going to necessarily put himself at risk like next week if they were already eliminated from playoff contention. And that makes some sense to me. I don't see how you bench the Hall of Famer here if he wants to play, if he's healthy. Um, you know, one of the top 10 greatest quarterbacks of all time. I don't think he's playing poorly this year. Yeah. He's been missing some open receivers, things like that, but it's kind of similar to what he was doing a number of years ago during that cold stretch from 2015 to 2019. Um, it's not that different. He still has the physical ability and the talent. If he didn't have that, then I would agree for it. And the whole thing with Jordan Love, because he had nine good plays in this game. I mean, I don't know. Are we really getting that excited about Jordan Love? He didn't play at all as a rookie. He had, let me see, he's played, he's had any plays at all in seven different games in his career. So in those games, he only has two games where he was kind of played a decent amount. One of them was against Kansas City where he started and Aaron Rodgers had COVID. His grading was awful in that game. Let's see, what was his grading in that game? He had a 30 grade in the one game that he started in Kansas City. EPA per play was actually not that bad, only negative two, but a 30 grade, so not not hot. Um, He had 19 plays against the Detroit Lions in week 18 of 2021. 39 grade in that game. Um, Negative 0.4 EPA per play. So yeah, he had nine good plays last night. Well, he had four awful plays against the Jets earlier this year and four okay plays against the Minnesota Vikings. And then the couple times where he had a chance to start, he completely flopped. And I I don't have a total sense of this, but my read is the fact that he was seen as being, you know, he wasn't even active really, as a rookie, I don't think at all. He was never even active as the backup as a rookie. Uh, He's been awful whenever he's had a chance to actually play a game. They were very desperate to re-sign Rodgers and just give him, you know, throw buckets and buckets and buckets of money at him, probably too much money at him. I don't know. Jordan Love probably stinks. So, like, I don't think he's a very good solution if there is any solution, which there may not be, for the Rodgers situation. And I don't think Rodgers is physically out of it, Right. And, you know, you want to keep your job if you're like LaFleur and you're um, Gutekunst. Gutekunst, is that am I saying that correctly? In the front office there. You want to keep your job, I think. I don't know if you can say, let's start a two-year you know, potential rebuild. Maybe have Jordan Love be our quarterback next year. Probably stink again after stinking this year. I mean, you guys might all be fired if that's the case. Still got a better chance probably with Aaron Rodgers playing next year as long as he's not physically limited, and that does not appear to be the chance. Where his cap number will be $31 million next year, it's high, but his you know total will completely de- destroy your cap numbers don't come into play until it gets over $40 million and then around $60 million in, in 2025. And then even if you do cut him or you trade him or you do whatever, Jesus, if you trade, like who's going to trade for this guy? You know, you have to trade him with a post-June. If you trade him with a pre-June 1st designation, it's a $100 million cap hit. If you cut him with a pre-June 1st, or he retires, let's say. I don't think he's retired. It's a $100 million cap hit. You lose $70 million on the cap. You can't really do that. You could do it post-June 1st, and you don't really lose anything on the cap. But now, I, I think it's just going to be a lot of meaningless talk about Jordan Love. I get it if you want to start it because Rodgers is injured and you have basically no chance of making the playoffs. That's fine. But any any thought of moving on to him next year, I think, is a 
2%, 3% probability type of event. And really, you're locked in here. The front office, the coaching, the team with Aaron Rodgers going forward. All right, I got to get out of here, guys. Hope you've enjoyed the wrap-up. We'll talk everything Monday Night Football a little bit tomorrow, Monday Night Football, but I'm going to talk to Seth Walder at ESPN Stats and Info Analytics guys over there about everything that he's seeing with all their new metrics over there. That'll be something that probably drops uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Until then, appreciate everyone tuning in, and I'll be talking at you very soon, later this week. Thanks, guys.